You know, it's one of those moments. I'm pretty fired up to preach right now because that was just an amazing, rich time to worship the king. Now, I know, I know we take this for granted because every week we come in here and we see hundreds and hundreds of other people around us and we just think this is normal. It's such a gift to come together as the people of God and to hear other people cry out in faith to Almighty God. What a gift we've been given. I hope you recognize this is, this is a, a gift, a taste of heaven that we get on earth right now, week after week after week. I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready to deliver God's word to you. But I, I have to start with a, a question that's going to require uh, two things, humility and honesty. Well, three things, and, and participation. So I, I want to ask you a simple question. I want you to be honest with me. How many of you in here are willing to admit you are afraid of the dark? Go, go ahead and raise your hand. Okay, got a few hands going around the room. All right, now I, I know two things for a fact. Um, statistics show that, and there's been a study done of adults in the United States of America, and it, it shows that 29% of women, when there's an anonymous poll done, are afraid of the dark, and 30% of men are afraid of the dark. So two things that teaches me. One, you're a bunch of liars, because not 30% of you raised your hand. And number two, uh, men are bigger scaredy cats than women, because uh, statistics show that to be true. And all you women out there nodding your head, you go, I already knew that. We, we men know it too. You gave birth to children, we didn't. Like you, you're on a totally different level. We, we understand and we acquiesce. You, you win, ladies. But 30% of men, 29% of women confess to being scared of the dark. Here's what's interesting. Beyond that, another 32% of women and 36% of men confess in an anonymous survey that they're very uneasy about the dark. Wouldn't quite say they're afraid of it, but they're uneasy. So 62% with math, 61% of women, 66% of men confess to being at best uneasy, at worst downright afraid of the dark. About two-thirds of the adult population doesn't like the dark. And, and it's not that hard to imagine why. Darkness is, is pretty chaotic feeling when you're around us. it. It makes us uneasy. feels like bad things are going to happen in the dark. I, I remember when I, I first discovered this, I was about 14 years old. And, uh, and I, I had a moment when I realized the way my mind plays tricks on me in the darkness. So uh, it's about 11 p.m., so it's good and dark. I'm laying in bed. At the time, I was around 13, 14, 15. I would struggle to go to sleep at night. I would just kind of lay there. My mind would wander. And so I'm laying there in bed, all snug as a bug in a rug in my little blanket and ready to go to sleep. And then I hear a soft little on the window, right, right by the bed. It's a little small tapping. And, you know, like immediately you're going, okay, uh, is someone in the house? Is that going on somewhere? It sounds like it's my window, but there's no way there's someone tapping on my window right now. And, and then I wait a little bit, and then I hear it again, right there on my window. And I'm, I'm going, okay, maybe it's like a tree branch in the wind. And I'm going through my mind, there, there ain't no tree out there. That's, that's not a tree branch. Uh, maybe the wind is just kind of blowing something and leaves are hitting it methodically and in rhythm. I don't know. Maybe, maybe something else is going on. I'm, I'm just trying to like calm down, going, there, there's no way there's someone outside my window about to break in and murder me. I, I, I'm okay. And, I, and so a brave 14-year-old, I pull my blanket up over my head and I just lay there. And then I hear it. Someone knocking hard and I realize a murderer's out there. He's about to bust in and kill me. So I do what any sane 14-year-old boy does. I go running to mommy and daddy in their room. 
I bust in, I go to my dad and I say, dad, there's somebody outside trying to bust in and kill me. Now, my dad, it's never been a prouder moment in my life. He wakes up, jumps out of bed and pulls the gun that's in between the mattress, which if you're watching online outside of Texas, this is Texas, this is what we do. He pulls the gun up and then, and I, I, I thought I saw a cape flying out. He just goes tearing out after whoever this guy is, the assailant who's about to kill his son. Now, in my moment, I think I'm just moved by my dad's bravery, but I decide I'm going to be his little sidekick, and, and I go running out with him. He doesn't even notice I'm behind him. He flings the door open, goes tearing out around the corner to see, and I'm right there next to him, and we turn, and we see this guy jumping over the fence and realize there really was somebody who was out there. And so at this point now, my dad, if I remember correctly, he may have a different side of the story. He's sitting right there. He's screaming at the guy, not no profanity. He's screaming at the guy. And he's just going, I, whoever you are, I've got a gun right now, and I'm going to shoot first, ask question later. I mean, he's just tearing into this guy. Is that how it went, Dad? Something like that, pretty much. And, and you could, you, I, mean, I just knew, like, whoever that guy was, he, he was gone. It was over. And then you hear this squeaky little voice say, I I'm sorry, Mr. Paredes, it's your neighbor, Jamal. I was just going to talk to Jason. I'm so sorry. So, so my, my neighbor, this is before cell phones, right? So... Like when, when you want to communicate with somebody, you do smoke signals or you, you knock on the window. Like that's how you, we didn't, they couldn't like send a text going, hey, you up? So he had just had something happen with his girl and he just needed to talk to somebody. So he comes on over to knock on the window. He knocked on the wrong window and almost died. It was so funny. But, but here's what got my attention. If it had been 11 a.m. and the sun was up and I heard a little knock on my window I would have assumed it was my dad or my brother or somebody outside, maybe even my neighbor, Jamal, somebody trying to get my attention. I would have just pulled back the blinds and saw who it was. I wouldn't have thought someone's trying to kill me. And it's dark though. It's 11 p.m. It's dark outside and my brain doesn't work because nowhere did I process a, a murderer is not going to knock on the window and say, hello, I'm about to bust in and kill you. Can you open the window? That's not going to happen, but when it's dark outside, your brain doesn't work right. Fear comes in. That's the way darkness works. Darkness exposes the things that we're afraid of, which is exactly why there are times that God uses darkness to get our attention. And, and if you think we in the United States of America, there's a 66% of us who don't feel comfortable with darkness, we pale in comparison to just how terrified the Egyptians would have been of darkness, which is exactly why the ninth plague to come is a plague of darkness. I want you to turn your Bible to the book of Exodus chapter 10. We're going to read, starting in verse 21 in a moment, we're going to read about the ninth of the 10 plagues. Now, we have guests with us tuning in online, in the room. I always want to make sure you're caught up to the story. So, Real quick overview, We're, we've been going through the book of Exodus chapter by chapter, just working our way through these incredible truths about how God called Moses to go to Pharaoh to get the people of Israel who were slaves in the land of Egypt to be set free. Pharaoh has denied him over and over. God has promised to send these plagues. We've now seen eight of the 10, all of this before Moses releases the people or Pharaoh releases them, Moses leads them out and they cross over the Red Sea and the, the whole thing that you know, that story of it, we're building up to it. So at this point now, the land of Egypt is ravaged. There's just been incredible amount of pain and suffering, and all these Egyptian gods are being killed by God as he's shown his power over them. And now we get to what would have been so far the most terrifying of the 10 plagues, the plague of darkness. Let's read about it. Exodus chapter 10, beginning in verse 21. 
It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days, but all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Okay, now we'll stop there just for a moment. So it says this plague of darkness comes on. And I told you before we read it, this right now would, be, would have been the worst of the 10 plagues. That's going to require a little bit of explaining because there are some of you right now who can't see the pain and agony of a plague of darkness. You would actually welcome a plague of darkness because you haven't slept in a while. And you're like, dude, just to have three days of darkness would be perfectly okay with me. I could use the extra sleep. It doesn't seem that terrifying, like a apocalyptic locust plague. Like, okay, yeah, yeah, that's pretty scary. Hellfire coming down, brimstone, all that, like, that, that's pretty scary. Boils breaking out all over your body, that's pretty scary. Darkness, eh, it's not so scary. And the reason why you might not be terrified or understand why they would have been terrified is because you don't understand the psychological and the theological damage this would have meant for the Egyptians. I'm, I'm going to deal with both of them. First one, the psychological damage. So I don't know if you have ever been in pitch darkness before. It's actually pretty rare. The very few times that we ever find ourselves in pitch darkness. But this is what they were going through. It says a darkness to be felt. It, it uses the word pitch darkness, but the, in Hebrew, it, it literally says a dark darkness. Like talking hand in front of your face and you can't see it. No light whatsoever. Now, this was some kind of supernatural darkness because the land of, of Goshen, where the Israelites were, they had light, but it was not penetrating into the land of Egypt. And not only that, they, it, apparently they couldn't light candles or get, because they could have light at night, but it says they could not get up from where they were. They were stuck. They, they could light a candle and it did not illuminate. It was this pitch dark blackness. Now, if you have ever been anywhere where it's pitch dark, you can't see anything, you know how discombobulating of a feeling it is. I've stood before in a completely dark room and it feels like you're in this abyss, like you're floating. You can't feel your feet on the ground anymore. You lose all sense of space and time. It's this weird out-of-body experience when you're actually in complete darkness. And, and part of the hardest parts about it, like I said, is you, you lose this sense of distance, not just physical, but of time, how long you've gone. You got to remember, this is going on for three entire days. That would have felt like eternity to these people. They have no way of telling how the time is moving on. When it's time to eat, they can't even find their food because they can't get out from the place where they are. They're just stuck in bed. They, they don't know when it's the time to sleep. They, they, they don't know how to move around. And remember, they don't have like an Apple watch. They can just tap it and a light comes on. Like their only means of knowing what time it was was the sun. But there ain't no sun. So they're just stuck there and they have no clue. It's now day three and they don't know if this is gonna be their eternity. They don't know it's only three days. They're just overwhelmed by this deep darkness and psychologically it would have been maddening for them. They were losing their minds after three days of it. But it wasn't just the psychological damage. It would have actually been worse for the, the theological damage because this would have been the crumbling of their entire religious system because the sun didn't come up. And you're going, well, how's that so? Well, if you don't know much about the Egyptians and their theology, the sun was one of the most prominent parts of their entire religious system. We've been showing you over the course of the weeks a number of images of the Egyptian gods and goddesses, and many of them had this disc right above their head, whether it's between their horns or just sitting on their head, and it's the sun. 
And the reason why was the sun was believed to, to bring divine power. Now, the most powerful of all the Egyptian gods at the time of Moses was a god that many of you have heard of. His name was Amun-Ra, the sun god. Now, Amun-Ra was believed to be the god above all the other gods. He was the creator god. In fact, his own priest would declare that no one could oppose Amun-Ra and win. And the reason why they believed it is because every single day, Amun-Ra proved to be the mightiest of gods. And here's the way they viewed it. They saw the disc go up in the sky every single morning, the sun. And they believed that was Amun-Ra riding his celestial boat across the sky. And he would go all the way over until he would go down at night into the netherworld where the other gods would try to oppose him. And every single morning he would come up victorious, conquering all those other gods again. And from the beginning of known time, Amun-Ra had never been defeated. Every morning, like clockwork, he would come up again and again and again, showing no one could defeat him. He was the God above all gods. Until the ninth plague, when there are three days when Amun-Ra does not come up. Their chief God has been defeated. And when Amun-Ra is defeated, the one who powers everything else, their whole religious system crumbles to the ground. Which is why at that moment, whenever Pharaoh is feeling this darkness, he's feeling his whole theology breaking down the weight of this. He's going insane. He goes, okay, uncle, uncle, Moses, Aaron, come on back. Come on back. He needs some help now because he has been devoured by this darkness. So let's see how he responds in verse 24. It says, then Pharaoh called Moses and said, go serve the Lord. Your little ones also may go with you. Only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. But Moses said, you must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock also must go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind for we must take of them to serve the Lord our God. And we don't know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, get away from me. Take care never to see my face again, for on the day you see my face, you shall die. Moses said, as you say, I will not see your face again. So you have another encounter, which sounds so much like the other ones. At the end of the day, Pharaoh says, I'm not letting you go. But, but I want you to notice what took place. There, there's a, a journey that Pharaoh has been going on where he feels like I'm giving God a ton here. He actually has been making concession after concession over the plagues where he gives more and more and more to, to Yahweh, to God. If you remember how he started off, go all the way back to chapters three and four, the call of Moses, and then chapter four, Moses goes before Pharaoh and says, God is saying, let my people go. Pharaoh's first response is, who is this Yahweh God they're even talking about? I'm not letting you go. And instead of letting them go, he adds on more work and says, you're gonna have to make the same amount of bricks, but I'm not giving you straw because you're lazy. That's why you wanna leave. There is no God named Yahweh. So he denies Yahweh. He burdens the people with greater oppression. He could care less. But then as you see the plagues coming, you see Pharaoh begin to change. And after the first few plagues, Pharaoh goes, okay, uncle, uncle, I, I see that Yahweh is a real God. So here's the deal. I'll let you go worship. You just can't leave the land of Egypt. And Moses says, that's not gonna work. We, we have to leave the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh says, fine, okay, you can leave. Just don't go too far. And the reason why is he wants to keep his eye on them. He didn't want them to leave and not come back, so he, he's going to make sure they don't go too far. Well, obviously, Moses says, no deal. God shows his power with a few more plagues until we got to yesterday, where you had the, or last week, we had the plague of locusts. And finally, Pharaoh goes, okay, I give up. I give up. 
I see now that I can't stand against Yahweh. I repent. So you can go out there, but only your men can go. Your women and children, they got to stay behind. Why? Because he wanted to make sure they had to come back. He knew that if their women and children were behind, they were going to make their way back. And he would still have the slave population. And then you have the ninth plague, the plague of darkness. And again, okay, okay, I give up, I give up. You're too much for me. All right, so now you can go, your women and children can go with you. All I'm asking is you leave your livestock behind. And it sounds like he's being more and more faithful, more and more willing to give, more and more humble. But the truth is, he's not at all. Because everything he's doing is to accomplish the same purpose. Whether it was the women and children not going too far or leaving the livestock, everything he's doing is to force them to come back. And when he does that, he exposes what he is the most afraid of. If, but if you're looking at the storyline, what you realize is Pharaoh isn't most afraid of the darkness. Pharaoh isn't actually most afraid of his land being ravaged. That's already happened. He's not afraid of, of his people getting hurt. He's not even afraid of his gods dying. The thing that he's most afraid of is losing his slave population. That's why everything he does is to make sure they come back. He's willing to endure any amount of suffering as long as he doesn't lose his slaves because he believed every bit of his identity was caught up in ruling over the slave population. And what God is doing is exposing to Pharaoh his real fear. And in so doing, he's also exposing Pharaoh's real God, Pharaoh's idol. Pharaoh's real idol was this slave population. And he says, I cannot lose them. I will not let them go. Let me tell you why that matters. There are people who are here today. You are listening to me speak. You are watching online and you don't even realize you have idols in your life. You have gods that have crept in that you are more afraid of losing than you are your relationship with God. You're more afraid of what it will be like not to have that thing than you are whatever consequence comes against you. And you're scared to death of giving that thing up to God. Whatever that thing is, that is your idol. That is your God. Your God is whatever you most depend on. And so whatever you're not willing to give up to the Lord, whatever you're most afraid he might ask you to give up, that right there is your God. And God will expose that to you. He will bring you to circumstances where you are forced to ask the question, am I willing or not to give this thing up? I remember the first time God did this for me. I've shared the story a number of times. I'm not going to go through the whole story again, but there was a, a time when I almost lost one of my daughters who yeah. had gotten into some medicine that wasn't, she wasn't supposed to take and almost died. And at the same time, I was being talked to at the first time about becoming the pastor of this church. And we were wondering if that was going to be what God was doing. And my greatest fear was that I was going to have to suffer the way the previous pastor did, who lost one of his children. I saw how he ministered to the church because he had been through so much pain. And I was scared to death that if God was going to call me to lead a church this big, I would have to go through the same suffering. And the moment we start talking about me becoming the next pastor, all of a sudden it looks like one of my daughters is going to die. And I just scream out to God saying, absolutely not. I refuse. If this is the cost to be the pastor of this church, I'm out. I don't want it. If this is what it costs to be your servant, I'm out. I don't want it. I'm not willing to pay that price. Now, God was gracious to me, and he didn't make me pay that price, and my daughter is still alive. But he showed me I had an idol. I had turned my own child into a God. God does this. You know the story of Abraham and Isaac. 
if you don't know the story, God tells Abraham, the son of the promise, Isaac, I want you to sacrifice him. But Abraham was so much better than me. He was willing to go all the way saying, if God's calling me to do this, I know he'll raise this child up from the dead. And God stops him in the last moment and says, I just wanted to see where your heart was. See, there are times God exposes where our heart is. And what we find is that there are idols that have crept into our lives. For many of you who are parents, it is your own children. They become your idol. And, and maybe it's not life and death. Maybe it's that God is calling him to go somewhere dangerous and you don't want to let him go. That's my child, God. You don't get to call them onto the mission field. You don't get to call them to go plant a church. God, you don't get to call them to choose that career. I've already got their life mapped out for them. You don't get to have them. They're mine. That child has become an idol, and God will expose that idolatry sooner or later. Maybe it's not a child. Maybe for some of you, it's a career path. You've chosen this. This is your career path, and right now, God is saying, I want you to abandon it. I want you to do something else, and you're going, no, 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 God. You can have all this. I'll make a lot of concessions, but you don't get to have my career. This is who I am. This is my identity, God. Don't take that away from me. It's become our idol. Maybe for some of you, it's a home you live in. You've made memories in this home, and God is telling you to downsize and do something else, and you're going, no, 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 God, you don't get to take that away from me. Don't you dare ask me for that. Whatever that thing is that you're most afraid of God asking you to give up, that's where you're most in danger of having an idol. Could be money, could be a possession, could be a relationship. The Lord is saying, this is not healthy for you. And God is calling you to give it up, and you're going, I don't want to. It could be respect. God inviting you to share the gospel with somebody, but you're scared to death that you might lose the respect of the, your peers and the people around you. You're going, no, I'm, not, I'm not doing that. Whatever that thing is that you're most afraid of giving up, that's your idol. And that's the very thing God is going to call you to give up, just to see if you're willing or not. Because if you don't know this, Following Jesus is an all or nothing thing. He says, you come with hands fully open, you give everything to me, or don't even try to give me anything at all. You may, Pharaoh may have thought he was giving a lot to the Lord. He says, no, it doesn't matter until you give me everything. If you keep holding back, that's idolatry. The word of God shows that I talked about Abraham and Isaac, but you go to the book of Exodus, look at the 10 commandments. One of the very first ones is you shall have no other gods besides me. You will value and honor nothing above me. It is all or nothing. If you want to get to the most serious one, go turn to the book of Luke chapter 14. Read verse 33. Listen to what Jesus says there. He says, anyone who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Now, I want you to understand what it doesn't say. He doesn't say anyone who doesn't renounce all that he has won't be a good disciple. No, no, no. He says, whoever doesn't renounce all they have, they can't even be a disciple. You can't, you can't even be a follower of Jesus unless you open up and say, I renounce everything. I, I want you to know, until you, whatever that thing is inside of you, hold on to, you let it go, you will never be able to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And even when you come to that place of faith daily, the Lord is going to remind you of those things that we grab back a hold of, and he's going to say, release it. Open it back up. Don't hold on to that. Don't let it become an idol. You see, Moses understood what Pharaoh didn't. If you notice verse 26, he says, no, 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 Pharaoh. We can't hold anything back. I don't know what the Lord's going to require of me. So not even a hoof will remain in the land of Egypt. He didn't even say not an animal. He's not a hoof. I'm not letting anything stay back. I'm taking all of it before the God so he can choose what he wants to have. I lay it before him. Moses understood the demands of God. Pharaoh did not. And because Pharaoh was still holding back, he would suffer the consequences of being against the almighty God. That's why when it moves on, you're going to see it gets even more severe. 
Poor Pharaoh thinks he's calling the shots, thinks he's giving a lot to the Lord. He's about to discover that this idol will make him an enemy of Almighty God. And we're going to read chapter 11, and we're going to finish up this morning reading that chapter. And in it, you're going to see the cost of somebody who keeps holding back from God. So you heard the end of it when Pharaoh finally says, all right, Moses, get out of here. Don't ever see my face again, because if you see my face again, I'm going to kill you. And right before he leaves, Moses says, all right, I won't ever see you again, but let me drop one last bomb on you. Look at what chapter 11 says. This first part is an interlude where you see what God is telling Moses. Then the Lord said to Moses, yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. And when he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. So that was the interlude. Now he gets in to the last statement before he leaves Pharaoh. Verse four. So Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor will ever be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. And Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. So Moses, he says, okay, I'm leaving. You don't want me to see your face again because you think you're going to kill me. But before I go, let me give you one last message. You think you own life and death, but you're about to discover there's a God who actually does. And here's how you're going to discover it. Every single firstborn in all the land of Egypt, they're going to die in one night like that. And you're going to discover you've come against the wrong God. It's as if Moses is saying to Pharaoh, hey, remember what your dad did when he, when he ordered the murder of all those Hebrew children back in chapter one? Remember that? God's about to bring that right back on top of Egypt. You better gird your loins like a man, Pharaoh. You're about to discover who's really in charge. And this was God against Yahweh to the highest point. And you're about to see God wins. But there's a side of this command. If we were being completely honest, that really hurts us to read. This is a tendency some Christians have to read the Bible and skip over the implications of it because they don't really want to dig. But I want us to wrestle for a moment with this because there are some of you, after reading that passage of Scripture, that you're deeply troubled by what the Lord just said. And here's the question you have. If God is a loving, good God, how in the world could he order the murder of tens, if not hundreds of thousands of people just because they're the firstborn. I mean, why do all these people have to die because of, of something they didn't do? I mean, here's Pharaoh's son. He's going to die because of Pharaoh's sin, not his own. How could God be just and good and order the murder of all these people? It doesn't sound right. Listen, if you have never wrestled with that before, I wonder you need to wrestle with it. If that question is welling up inside of you, it's a good question to ask. I, I want you to know the truth and really wrestle with it. But I, I want to tell you, if you're going to wrestle with that question, make sure you wrestle with it in the right context. Because there is a context in which God issues this warning. 
It's the same context I told you before just last week. God's main purpose in bringing the plagues upon Egypt was not primarily to punish Egypt. It was to save his own people from slavery. You remember from the very beginning, he, he said this last week in chapter 10, verse 2. The whole reason I'm doing this is so that you'll have a story to tell your children and your grandchildren the, the good news of what I did against Egypt so that I could redeem you and they would know that I'm Yahweh. The whole point of this was to rescue a people who were oppressed by Egypt, to make them his own, to give them the story of his love toward them. And God knew that Pharaoh was never going to turn and release them until it got to the point of the death of the firstborn. Don't forget, this is, this is now going to move into the 10th of 10 plagues. He had nine chances to turn around and never did. To some of you would go, yeah, but it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Well, don't forget what I taught you a few weeks ago. The first five plagues, it was Pharaoh hardening his own heart. And then at the sixth one, you see a turnover where God finally accepts his rejection of him. And they continue that journey down. But it is Pharaoh rejecting God again and again, refusing to release the people of God. And because God knew that Pharaoh would never release the people, he had to move to this place. His goal wasn't death, it was life. His goal was salvation and love. Death was the only means by which it could happen. Remember why he does what he does. Now there's some of you going, okay, I hear you, Jason. And, and, and maybe you have some truth in that, but, but that still doesn't, that doesn't do it for me. I mean, God could have chosen any other way. Why, why this particular way? Well, if you're still struggling to understand the heart of God and see God's love in this, I want to share one, one last thing with you. And it's what you see in this story is that our God is a God who practices what he preaches. He doesn't call us to give up everything to him without being willing to give up everything for us. Because the whole story of the Exodus is just a foreshadowing of what's to come. You, you may not realize this, but hundreds of years after this Exodus moment, in a city not too far away called Jerusalem, there was another plague of darkness and another plague of the death of the firstborn son. Only this time it was not Pharaoh's son, it was the father's son. I want you to turn over to the book of Matthew chapter 27. I want you to see this. I want you to understand what the book of Exodus is trying to teach us. Matthew chapter 27, verses 45 to 50. Listen to what it says. Verse 45, the plague of darkness, it says, Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. So it's not three days, it's three hours of darkness, but it's the plague of darkness. And then what comes right after it? The death of the firstborn. Look at verse 46. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, which is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let's see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and he yielded up his spirit. And in that moment, the firstborn of God, the only begotten, breathes out his last and he dies. And what you discover in the New Testament is the plague of darkness and the plague of the firstborn. But this time, the firstborn dies, not because of the sin of his father, but because of the love of his father. Because the father says, my child, there is no way these people I've created are ever going to be redeemed. My wrath is going to have to fall on somebody. Son, I'm going to put my wrath upon you. 
And the father allows his own son to be the one to go up. Pharaoh didn't have a choice. His own sin demanded that his son be murdered. But the father had a choice and he chose to let his own son be murdered on a cross to redeem us. What fuels God is not hate or death, it is love. So much so that he's willing to take the plague upon himself, to turn his face, to make his own son cry out, my God, my God, daddy, where are you? And the father wouldn't even look as he watched his own son die to absorb the plague. Our God is a loving God. And he's demanded of us that we trust him, but not without reason. He demands that we hold nothing back from us because, because he's held nothing back from us. He, he doesn't want us to hold back and say, I don't trust you. He said, look at my gospel. Look what I've done for you. Why wouldn't you trust me? And yet we are so thick-headed. And we hold back afraid it's going to hurt too much. No, God, I don't want to give this to you. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't want to feel what it's going to be like not to have this. And the whole time God is saying, trust me. I love you. I've proven it. Here's, here's what I need you to hear. God will ask us to give up the things that we're most afraid to give up. Now, maybe he'll let us keep it like he did with Abraham and Isaac, and he'll test us. Sometimes he'll actually ask us to give it up. And the only way you're going to be willing to give it up is if you believe that our God is good. Our God does not want to harm you. He does not want to make you suffer for suffering's sake. He may take things out of your life because they are idols and they are going to wreck you. He may test you to expose darkness in your life. But his point is to breathe blessing and life into you. And he's just saying, would you trust me? So my question for you at the end of this is, do you trust him? What are the places in your life right now that you're scared to death he may ask you to give up? He, he wants to know that. He wants to, I've been praying that the Spirit would speak to you right now and reveal what those things are. Where are the places? What are the things? Is it, is it a child you don't want to let go of? Is it a career that you're scared you might lose? Is it, is it a, a savings thing that you've been wanting to buy something and you're afraid God may ask you to give it up? Is it, is it going and doing something that you don't want to do and you're scared to give it up? What is it that God is calling you to let go of? And are you willing today to say, I will hold on to it no longer. I give it to you, Lord. There may be some of you today, and one of the most humbling things you can do is to come down front and pray with somebody and say, okay, I'm scared. I admit I'm scared of this, this health issue. I'm afraid God is never going to heal me, and I, 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 don't, I don't want that. Or this family member is sick, and I, they, they may die. It looks like they're going to die, and I'm scared right now. And maybe you say, would you pray? Pray for me to trust God. Pray for me to entrust this situation into his hands. Maybe you need to come down and bow down on the steps. You already know where you failed. Maybe God has taken something away from him and you've been so angry with him because you didn't understand what he was doing. He's trying to expose idolatry in your heart. Maybe today you just need to bow down and say, forgive me. I've been angry at you, God, and I shouldn't have been. Would you forgive me? I now see you were just trying to heal my heart. In a moment, I'm going to invite you to respond that way, and I pray you'll be humble enough to do it. All you have to do is ask yourself, what am I afraid he's going to ask me to give up? And you'll find what that thing is. Or what am I angry that he's taken away from me? And you'll find what that thing is. Before I open that up, there's one last thing I want to say. I know right now in this room, I know people watching online, I know there are some of you and you have struggled to give up the most important thing to God. The one thing you're holding on to is yourself. 
God is saying, I want you to come. I want you, I want you to crucify self and come follow my son Jesus. And you're going, I don't know if I want to do that. You're scared to death of what's on the other side of that. You're scared to death to come up here in a baptistry and get baptized because you don't know whether you're going to be strong enough to do it. What if you don't change enough? Or, or what if on the other side of that, there's a lot of pain? What if God asks me to give up things I don't want to give up? Or, or what if I have to change all the things that I find joy in? What if I have to give those things up? And I don't know if I want to do that. What if God calls me to do something really hard? I don't know if I'm ready for it. And you're scared to death to let go. So you're clinging on to your identity and yourself and the life you have right now. And there's only one thing that's going to cause you to let go. And it's desperation. <clears throat> when you are desperate enough to let go of the darkness that is in your life, until that moment comes, you will not give yourself to Jesus. But there are some of you right now, and you are in the middle of darkness. You feel a depression. You feel an oppression. You feel overwhelmed like there's this cloud around you everywhere you go all the time. And you're so sick of it. You don't know how you're going to get out of it. And it's driving you crazy. And you want to know, how do I get out of this darkness? Let me tell you how you get out of the darkness. You come to the light. And the light is Jesus Christ. The Father says, I want to rescue. He says to the Apostle Paul, I want to rescue you from the domain of darkness and bring you over to the kingdom of light, the kingdom of the beloved Son. But it only comes when you say, I hold nothing back. I'm not going to hold my future, my identity, anything. I give you everything. I'm going to die to self and raise up in Christ Jesus. There are some of you who need to take that step of faith today. We have a baptistry on the stage. Every week there have been people who are coming forward to say, I'm ready. Someone in this room needs to take that step of faith too, I believe. So we're going to give you a chance to come forward and say, I'm ready. I'm ready to give myself. If this is what it means to find light, if this is what it means to, to be healed, I, I need it. I want it. I'm ready to place my faith in Jesus Christ and get baptized. And we'll give you that opportunity today. We'll counsel with you, make sure you're ready, but you've got to respond. So I'm going to invite you all to stand up right now, if you will. I'm going to invite the prayer team to come around the front, the pastors, and to be ready to pray with you. If you need to come, be prayed over to say, I'm taking the situation. I've been afraid. Lord, I put it at your feet. You can come down. If you want to bow down and say, Lord, I'm sorry for being angry at you, you can come do that and pray. But most importantly, if you're saying, today's the day, hell, I believe, can lose another one who's been gripping somebody in this room. If they'll just come, humble themselves and say, I'm ready to give all of myself to Christ. You come let us know because we're ready to receive you. You respond as you need to right now.